think about encouragement to endure. We want to think about encouragement to endure, and our actual text is Hebrews 5.11 through 6.12, and I asked David only just just to read uh, verses 1 through 12. So we'll be looking at Hebrews 5.11 through 6.12 this morning. Why don't we stand for prayer? We could do that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us words to pray in the Lord's Prayer. We know that we cannot mindlessly say those words. We know that it is a pattern for prayer and that we need to grow in prayer. But Lord, we thank you for helping us. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Thank you for the beauty as as those who are saved through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can just pray those words together as Pastor Ray led us. And Lord, as we prayed in our pre-service prayer time this morning, Lord, it matters that, that I prepared. It matters that everyone who is listening has some degree of, of readiness to hear, hopefully a, a, a high degree of readiness. Lord, these things matter, but, but certainly what matters is your help. Uh, because we confess, John chapter 15, apart from you, uh, Lord Jesus, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, would you help us uh, in, in my weakness, in our weakness, uh, Lord, come in your power, in your strength, uh, to bring salvation, and to bring uh, sanctification. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you could, uh, if you're physically able, you can just remain standing, and hopefully you have not lost your place there. I'm, I'm still in Hebrews six, but we want to go back to the only passage that was on purpose not read yet. To go back to the end of Hebrews five, if you would. Hebrews five, chapter eleven. About this. We have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. You can have a seat. We'll keep reading here just a couple of verses. 514, but solid food, Hebrews 514, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Now, the formal title, the formal title this morning for Hebrews 5.11 through 6.12 is this. It's the most difficult passage in the New Testament. That's my title. And we will, in part, in small part this morning, we do want to revisit 
five verses in particular that makes me say the title, this is the most difficult passage in the New Testament. So we want to revisit, let me just give you a lay of the land of what we plan to do this morning, Lord willing. We want to revisit the five verses that, that some would say are the most challenging, most, most contested uh, verses in the New Testament. But then we want to look at these verses in their context. And so we want to look in the context at what comes after these five verses, which is six, four through eight, by the way, what comes after, it's very important, and what comes before. So that's what we want to do. Revisit the most difficult passage in the New Testament, which we've already done in a previous message, and then look what comes after, what comes before. But first of all, this morning, before we do that, I thought maybe I'd go ahead and give you in some ways, go ahead and give you the, uh, the takeaways this morning what we might normally reserve for the end of the message. Let me just start quickly by just giving you five things this morning. Let me just quickly give you five things. And again, you could say that these are even the takeaways of the message of what's going to be the end game this morning. So quickly, these five things. First of all, the application would be, let me warn you, do not commit apostasy. Let me warn you, do not commit apostasy. And, and what is that? Well, let me give you a picture, courtesy of MacArthur. He says, there was a pastor of a very well-known Bible church. You know, MacArthur's in the Los Angeles area. There was a pastor of a very well-known Bible church, one that taught the word of God. Today, he is a denier, this pastor not MacArthur. Today, he is a denier of the deity of Jesus Christ. He's a professor at the University of Southern California, and he does everything he can to turn young people away from Christianity. He also falls into the category of an apostate, somebody who knows the truth. What's apostasy? What's an apostate? Somebody who knows the truth, has all the information about the truth, and willfully turns his back on the truth for his own pursuit. Okay, so that's number one. Let me warn you, do not commit apostasy. Number two, and I see this as the theme today. So if you want to know what do I see as the theme in the text, number two, do keep going. Do keep going. What's the, what's the opposite of apostasy? If apostasy is falling away, well, the opposite would be to continue on. To continue on all the way all the way to the end. Do keep going. Continue on to the end. Listen to this. I thought this was wonderful. Apparently, uh, this was what Lord Wellington said after the great victory over Napoleon at Waterloo. He said this. He said, our men were not braver than the enemy. They were brave five minutes longer. Our men were not braver than the enemy. They were brave five minutes longer. So that's the second encouragement. Do keep going. Continue on to the end. Don't give up. Number three. Number three. How does this passage this morning, which it doesn't matter what I say. It matters what the text says. We're about to dig into the text here, right? How does this passage this morning address us in our fallenness? 
How does this passage address us in our fallenness? Well, to be honest, it, it may make us uncomfortable because it tells us that there are some in the church today, listen to me, there are some in the church today who may not be as mature as they think they are. They are deceived into thinking that they are fully mature when they need to grow. There, there are some in the church today who may not be as mature as they think they are. They may be in some ways deceived. Now, it's not a bad thing to need to grow. The need to grow is not a bad thing. But then there are others who need, and I say this carefully, I never say these types of things lightly, I hope. There are others in the church who need a biblical kick in the pants. Uh, they need to mature in the sense of serving others. And so, and so third, this passage addresses us in our fallenness, maybe in being deceived about how mature we are. We think we're pretty mature. We, we may not be as mature as we think we are. Or we just need to be spurred and stirred and and in a healthy way shamed. See the text this morning? Hey, don't be lazy. Number four, let us all go on to maturity. Let us all go on to maturity. And then another thing that we want to see as we quickly get into the text is that the Christian life, remember, dear friends, the Christian life is a race, and what is needed in the race of the Christian life is faith and patience. Faith and patience to endure. So Hudson Taylor, famous missionary to China, when people wanted to come and be missionaries to China, Hudson Taylor would say, he would tell them there are three things that are absolutely essential for a prospective missionary. And they are essential things for a prospective missionary. They are patience, patience, and patience. And in the race of the Christian life, that's what this is. It is a race. If you are a believer here this morning, are you here and not a follower of Christ? Good. We're glad you're here. We hope that by the end of even the service, you would become that which you are now not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we need endurance with patience. Well, we'll circle back to some of those things. Remember what I said is the game plan. We need to revisit the most difficult passage in the New Testament and see it in its context. What comes after, what comes before. So look with me at Hebrews chapter 6. And the most difficult passage in the New Testament, if it is that, if it is that, there's many interpretations, but God never gives us a passage in the Bible merely to debate, to debate about it. There's not a passage in the Scripture merely, merely just for our information, merely just for, certainly not just for theological debate. Let's revisit for a moment for the purpose of seeing it in context, verses 4 through 8, Hebrews Chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. And there is, as he introduces Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, there is a certain case that he's talking about. There is a certain case, he says in verse 4, for it is impossible 
in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and he goes on to say in verse 6, to restore them again to repentance. Glance down with me very quickly at verse 18. Glance down at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. And if you just look at that one phrase in the middle of verse 18, it also says, it is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for God to lie. But here, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, he says, it's impossible in the case of these people uh, who have fallen away ultimately, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. This is, dear friends, a severe warning. It is a sober warning. What is this passage? What is Hebrews 6, 4 through 8? As we've said before, it's one of the five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. There are five so-called warning passages in the book of Hebrews. This is the most famous This is the most severe, this is the most sober of the five. And let me just very quickly remind you of what's at stake here. I'm just going to remind you of the two interpretations that we said are inbounds. And I'll give you just very quickly three three ways to understand this passage that we would say are out of bounds. Doesn't mean that those who hold these out of bounds interpretations are unbelievers. Doesn't mean that. But for us, there's two ways of looking at this that could be inbounds and three ways, probably more, that would be out of bounds. So very quickly, who are these people in verse 4? Very quickly, look what it says. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. So the two inbounds, acceptable, according to how we see Scripture, one would be that actually these people uh, represent true believers. So this view would say that this is a warning, it's a severe warning, and that God does the ends and the means. And God uses means to keep his people running in the race all the way to the finish line. And one of the main means, one of the main ways that God keeps his people in the race is you're driving down the road. You're driving down the road and you see a sign that says, warning, danger, do not go further than half a mile. If you you proceed from where you are half a mile more, the sign clearly says, warning, danger, it may even say fatalities have occurred. And so this view says God uses means like Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. And what this view says is that, all listen to me, all of the elect, which is to say all of God's chosen people, will respond positively to the sign. There will not be one of God's chosen people driving down the road, seeing the sign that says danger, warning, who will not respond positively. All of God's people will. So this view says it's believers, the issue at stake is apostasy, the end game would be eternal judgment, but all of God's people will respond, and it's not hypothetical. Okay, the other inbounds view of this most difficult passage in the New Testament, the other inbounds view would say that these people, 
what people? Those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted of the goodness of the word of God. This is the most common view for those who believe that you cannot lose your salvation. That's what we teach here. We, by the way, we don't teach merely eternal security. We teach the perseverance of the saints. Okay? It's the perseverance of the saints. Can I stop there for just a second? When I say we don't teach merely eternal security, we, te- we do teach that, but we teach something more robust, the perseverance of the saints. It's oftentimes, and I, don't, I, I actually try not to use this word in the pulpit hardly ever, um, but it's oftentimes those who are called Calvinists who believe this view. Long time ago, true story, there was a Calvinist who was surprised to find one of John Wesley's preachers in agreement with this teaching of the perseverance of the saints. The Calvinist said that he did not think that they taught the perseverance of the saints. You're a follower of John Wesley, Wesleyanism, Methodists, and you, you agree with what I'm saying about this? The Wesleyan replied, Oh, sir, you have been misinformed. It is the perseverance of sinners that we doubt. He was right. I get this from Richard Phillips. He was right. It is the saints. Listen, maybe you didn't catch that. It's the saints who persevere. Saints are people who've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ through the cross of Christ. Saints are people who still sin. But if your life is defined only as a sinner, saints still sin. But if you are a sinner who's just trying to be a saint, well, then you will not persevere to the end. You will prove yourself not to be a saint. And so the the second inbounds view, okay, the second inbounds view of this difficult passage says these people seem like they're believers. In verses 4 through 6, they seem like they're believers, but at the end of the day, and this is the most common view, at the end of the day, they're not true believers. Because it says... Among all the descriptors of them, it says they have fallen away, right? In verse 6, they've fallen away. And so the issue is apostasy. The warning is real. The end game is final judgment. And then just very quickly, three out-of-bounds views would be that these are true believers, and true believers can commit apostasy. For us, that's out-of-bounds. We teach that a true believer, because of God, will never commit, will never fall away, will never fall away, not because of us, but because of the grace of God. God will keep us in the race. And, and I, and I want to do kind of both of the inbounds. And God puts the signs up and, and in some means because God not only chooses his people and sends his son to die on the cross for his people who is dead and buried and raised from the dead, and God not only, he's the one who gives us faith and repentance, but he keeps us. He doesn't save us and then say, well, go figure it out, right? Praise the Lord that he doesn't say, I'm going to save you and you are going to keep yourself. We cannot keep ourselves. So all believers will endure to the end because of God. And so it's, it's out of bounds to say that these are true believers and true believers can lose their salvation or can apostatize. It's out of bounds to say this warning is not that severe 
This warning's not that severe. It's only talking about the loss of rewards. No, it's talking about final judgment, eternal judgment. Well, this is this passage is just hypothetical. The author, Paul, or whoever it was, the author had his reasons for putting it here. It's just hypothetical. No, it's a real warning. It's a real warning, and we should take note of it today. Verse 7. Look at verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now let's get into some of the new material. Okay? It's been said, and I love this summary. I hope it will help you because it helped me. Here's what. What's going on in this passage? Let me just tell you what's going on. And we're going to kind of circle back to these things, all right? He says in 511 through 63, 511 through 63, you are spiritually immature. That's what he says to them. 511 through 63, you are spiritually immature. 64 through 68, you are in danger. You with me? 64 through 68, you are in danger. 69 through 12, I have confidence in you. What? You're spiritually immature. You're in danger. Like that's escalating it, right? You're spiritually immature. You're in danger. I have confidence in you. Don't don't pigeonhole the Bible. Don't say, well, it can only say this. It can't, it can't, the Bible can't say. You're in danger, and I have confidence in you. There's one sense. There is a sense in which he says both to them. And so what he does in verses 9 through 12 is he gives them encouragement to endure. If this whole thing, you might have this as a heading in your Bible. You might have this as a heading beginning at verse 511, like in the ESV Bible, warning against apostasy. Well, that is the whole thing. It's warning against apostasy. But his main goal, his positive goal, is to say, I want to I want to blow on the fire. I want you to endure to the end. I want you to run the race with joy and with hope. Don't give up your hope. Don't give up your joy. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured, endured the cross. No, in verses 9 through 12, this is important. I want you to notice this. He gives them encouragement. Now notice what he says. Isn't this a weird contrast? No, ultimately it's not weird. It's the word of God. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Encouragement can take many forms. Encouragement can include warning and even open rebuke. Do not say that encouragement is only make me feel better. He's encouraging them actually in this whole passage, but specifically in 9 through 12. 
I don't know how many of you are college football fans. You may or may not know the name Lou Holtz. In a 1978 interview, Lou Holtz, who was the coach of the Arkansas Razorbacks at that time, and they were number one in the nation, he talked about his philosophy of coaching. Listen to this. At practice, Lou Holtz grabs his players by their face masks and shakes them. He flails at them with his hat. He throws his hat in disgust. He smacks players on the rear with his omnipresent manila folder. Once you get things going, then you begin to build confidence, he says. You praise loudly and criticize softly. I do not say that this is a perfect comparison to what's going on here. I do say that his philosophy of coaching is to is primarily one of encouragement. And his philosophy of coaching is encouragement involved in the early days of practice being tough on the players. And I would say especially so, and maybe where this breaks down, is that the author here had reason to say to them, he had reason to say to them, hey, you're being lazy. You're being sluggish. That's actually what he says at the end of our passage and at the beginning. At the end and at the beginning. Don't be sluggish. Don't be lazy. I'm concerned about you. You're spiritually immature. You need to go on to maturity. In fact, I'm going to warn you. I'm going to warn you that apostasy is a real thing. So do not commit apostasy. But then in the imperfect comparison, Lou Holtz says, once you've established that discipline, you, you praise loudly and you criticize softly. And there's some sense, there's some sense in, in which that's going on here. Look again at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Glance down again at verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have wrong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Wrong encouragement. And that's precisely that strong encouragement is what he's doing in verses 9 through 12. How does he encourage them? How does he encourage them? He tells them what I tell you. If you're a Christian this morning, God is aware of all of your works, meaning good works, and I would say even your good intentions. As Christians, there needs to be more than good intentions in our lives, but sometimes, sometimes our good works don't come to fruition just because of life or whatever. Look at what he says in verse 10. Look what he says to them. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. If you notice in verse 11 and 12, he's kind of coming back to prodding them, isn't he? Verses 11, we want you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. 
Listen to me, as believers, we do not receive the assurance of our faith by how good we're doing in our Christian lives. We don't receive the assurance of our faith by how good we're doing, but it is a, it is a means of assurance to us when we're simply walking with the Lord by His grace and we're just living the basic Christian life, which is serving God by serving His people. Serving God by serving His people. Let this be a banner over this church. As I believe it says in 1 Timothy, do good, listen to me, do good to all men, especially to the household of faith. Do good to all men, especially to the household of faith. And that's what he's saying there. Don't take my word for it. Verse 10, he's encouraging them by saying, God is not unjust so as to overlook your works. Did you know that works are massively important in the Christian life? Good works. Good works are massively important in the Christian life. And God knows and sees and takes account of, my dear brother, my dear sister, he takes account of your good works and even your good intentions. There must be more, but good resolves, as Thessalonians says. We should have, we should have resolves to do good. Do you, have, do you have resolves to do good? God takes notice. You could compare, by the way, uh, chapter 10. You could compare chapter 10, verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed, Hebrews 10, 33, to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He encourages them. God knows. I wish I could get that point across better this morning. God knows your good works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is everything. Ephesians 8, 2, 8 through 10, for it is by grace that you are saved through faith, this is not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's, it's all the grace of God. And then it says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared or even predestined that we would walk in ahead of time. We are not saved by good works. We're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're saved to walk in good works. And God takes notice of the good works of his people. He is not ignorant of the good works of his people. And so there's the context. It is a context of encouragement. It is a context where he still says there's only, if there, there's only one imperative in this whole passage. There's only one command. And it's back in verse 1. Back in verse 1. We looked at this passage as a standalone sermon at the beginning of the year. Call us in 2023 to go on to maturity. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and and then you get to verse 4, and it's like he smacks them, and it's like, whoa, man, this is a severe warning. 
and 4 through 8, this is severe in a, severe in a good way. Why the heavy hand here, Paul or whoever the author is? We don't know who the author is. Why the long face? Here's part of the reason why. Because if you're a believer in the church and you never go on to any type of maturity, then you need to be warned that only what awaits you is a fearful hope. All believers, listen to this. All believers, listen to verse 1 where he says, let us go on to maturity. And, and chapter 5, 11 through 14, chapter 5, verse 11 through 14, where he says, you are spiritually immature. And there will be a response from God's people to this, to this shaming. He, he's, he's shaming them a little bit in 5 through 11. You need your mother's breast. You need milk. What you should be doing is you should be teachers by now. You should be teachers, but you need milk and not solid food. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their their powers of discernment trained to distinguish good from evil from constant practice. No, you are spiritually immature. Don't think, listen to me, don't think, that if you are not walking with Christ by his grace alone, if you continue to walk away with Christ, do not think, according to the authority of God's word, that all will be well. It will not be well. But if you are a believer, even if you feel like, man, I'm the weakest believer in the whole church in the world, and listen to the encouragement beginning in verse 9. God knows his people. He knows your works of faith. He's enabled you to do those works in the first place. And so I'll just tell you the same thing I told you at the beginning. And I'll just make it faster. Let me warn you, do not commit apostasy. Do keep going in joy and hope all the way to the end. There are some in the church today who may not be as mature as they think they are. They are deceived into thinking that they are fully mature when they need to grow, and this can be dangerous. You can look down on others thinking that you are fully mature, and you can be judgmental, and that's dangerous. And on the flip side, some in the church, even here today, we, I want to be so careful, we need a biblical kick in the pants. We need to not only grow in doctrine, we need to grow in practice We need to listen. We need to let our Christianity and our Christ following, listen to me, we need to let our Christ following be much more, much more than private devotions plus one hour at church a week, maybe two or three times a month. Dear friends, you know me. It's not my heart to come down heavy, but we cannot grow to maturity if our Christianity consists even of private devotions one hour at church in the week with God's people, maybe two to three times a month, maybe sometimes less. So let us all, let us all go on to maturity. Let us all go on to maturity, chapter 6, verse 1, and let us see that if we reject the Lord Jesus Christ, according to this text, according to verse 6, according to verse 6, if we reject the Lord Jesus Christ, In a steadfast way, he will not be going, dare I even say it, he will not be going to the cross again. Christ has been crucified once for all. He condescended. He came down. He was crucified 
We are looking forward to the consummation when he comes again. He will not be dying and rising again. He has been crucified once and for all, once and for all, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, slain for sinners, our prophet, priest, and king, perfect life, virgin birth, makes atonement on the cross, dies as a substitute for sinners, rises again, ascends to heaven, intercedes for his own people now, rules and reigns, is coming again so that everyone who repents and believes will have a clear conscience and will know God for all of eternity. If you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, if you reject the gospel, there's nowhere else for you to go. There's nowhere else for you to go. Verse 6, they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So endure. Run the race all the way to the end. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, help us, move us, that we would not be sluggish. Laziness and sluggishness in spiritual matters may or may not reveal our true heart if we continue in laziness. Lord, help us again to look to the cross, to see that there is no solution whatsoever apart from the way that you have made through Jesus Christ. And we thank you that Hebrews holds before us that he is a prophet, or he is, a, excuse me, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is our great prophet, priest, and king. He is the son of God and the son of man. He is the lamb of God and the lion of Judah. Lord, we worship you this morning. Help us to worship you. Help us to go on in grace, to go on from elementary school, but to never leave our foundation behind. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.